Don't you love it when what you've prepared to preach is exactly in line with what God does during the worship? That's a good sign. You can judge for yourself, but as far as I'm concerned, this is perfect. We're all right. Fantastic. Because today we're going to learn something about this person. So who's this? It's a photograph taken. Uh, it's a biblical character, so a photograph from the Bible. This is what she looked like. Um, apparently. Google tells me that's what she looks like, so who am I to argue with Google? Do you want to, do you want to see a name? That's a name. Has that helped at all? We have a Rahab and a Deborah. Any other advances on Rahab or Deborah? Esther. That's it, Deborah. So Deborah, Judges 4 and 5. That's your cue to get out your trusty, dusty Bible, to open your fruit-based electronic tablet, or whatever holy tablets you carry with you. It's largely Judges 4 we're going to look at. You know, Judges 5 is probably one of the first written parts of Scripture, second only to the Torah. Oldest actually written. Not where does it fit in the chronology, but when it was actually penned, Judges 5, the song of Deborah. That's just an aside whilst you find Judges chapter 4. Okay, so who is this lady that we are told looks like that? There's an, I'll give you a bit of art again. You know, we did that the other way, didn't we? We went through some artistic depictions of Bible stories. We'll do a bit of that as we go on, just to sort of see how people interpret it. I think she was an actress in a, in a, in a film of Deborah. I think that's where that came from. If you're there, tell me what your Judges 4 verse 4 says. We'll have a variety of uh, versions with us today. What's Judges 4 4 say? Lapidoth. Okay, that's fine. The wife of Lapidoth. Does anybody have anything other than the wife of Lapidoth? No. Okay. Now, of course, it could be that she was the wife of Lapidoth. That is how it is translated in the vast majority of translations. But it doesn't actually say that. In the Hebrew, I'm told, it says, Eshet Lapidoth, which means woman of Lapidoth. So you can see why the interpretation would be the woman of Lapidoth. The only issue is, I'm told, Lapidoth is not really a Hebraic name. Nobody is called Lapidoth. They are now because of this verse, but prior to that, it was not a name that was around at all. So was she a woman who belonged to Lapidoth, i.e. the wife of, or was she actually a woman of what the word means? Fire a woman of torches, a woman of light. That puts a completely different spin on it, doesn't it? Now, this confusion has been translated in many ways, or interpreted in many ways, the wife, of, the wife of a guy called Lapidoth, or the wife of somebody who was the torchkeeper in the temple. So he was the Lapidoth, job title, and he, she was the wife of. But many are saying, no, actually, who says she's married? She is a woman on fire. She is torch lady, like a superhero. She is the lady on fire, which when you realize that she teams up with Barak, which of course means lightning, 
you're talking about torch, you know, fire, torch, and lightning. It's, it's quite an interesting double out, that, isn't it? We don't know whether her husband was called Lapidoth or whether that was her nickname, her Monica. She wasn't called Monica, her nickname. <clears throat> we don't know that, but I think there's an element where there's a fieriness in it, which means that some interpretations, you get all sorts of bizarre, these are, these are expressions of Deborah, the feisty woman of God. That's more like, is it brave, is it? Um, the Disney cartoon set in Scotland with the ginger-haired girl. What was her name, Meredith? or Something like that. I've never seen it. I don't think there was much ginger hair in Bible times, to be honest. I'm not really sure that that was right there. That's Celtic, isn't it? But anyway, that's, that's just some people say, no, no, this is the sort of woman that Deborah was. You could always rely on Deborah. Because she was going to you know, free the, the people from their oppression. Hey, we don't know. We don't know what sort of person she was. What we do know is what she did. So this was a time of uh, the Jewish people, the Israeli people, the children of Israel, were under oppression. We're going to look at this next week as well, about the whole cycles of oppression that the people went through throughout the book of Judges. And at this particular time, they're being oppressed by King, King Jabin and his general, Sisera. Okay? So it's a time when the whole nation is oppressed. A time when actually nobody has any weapons. Every weapon has been taken away from them. You can see, you know, if you're being occupied by an occupying power and they've taken all the weapons away, you're in a pretty weak position. A time when people weren't seen on the streets bit like the scenes you see in Beirut and other places. You, know, you think, oh, who would want to go out there? Actually, Beirut's not a good example. Um, what's the places in Syria nowadays where all the fighting's happening? Aleppo, Mosul, that was one I was thinking of, Mosul, that's it, yeah. Those, you know, as you've seen the pictures on the news, so it's kind of a bit like that, you know, don't go out in the streets, you don't know what's going to happen. That's the sort of climate that Deborah comes into the story at. And it says she prophesied under the palm tree, and there's a, a an artistic impression of her. Prophesied under the palm tree. Why did she do that? Well, probably to protect her moral reputation. If people are coming to a single woman, or indeed a married woman, we don't know, for private counsel, she wanted to do it outside in public. An honorable woman. But they came to her. People came to her for words of hope. In this time of oppression, in this cycle of oppression that, they, that the nation was under, when people wouldn't even go out in the streets and had no way of fighting back, they went to her to hear God's word of hope in their life. Isn't that amazing? That's the role of the prophet, isn't it? I have words of eternal life for you. Come and hear the word that I'm giving to you. Excuse me. I'm going to impart some things on you this morning. One might be a bit of a cold, so apologies for that if it comes around. No, no, we're in, we're in healing this morning. I'm not going to give you that. Amen. Just don't use this uh, microphone after me. They came for words of hope, came for words of salvation, came for a way out. So that was her role. She sat there and she prophesied, and God spoke through her mightily. 
But then there came the time when she realized, or she'd heard the word from God, where she had to call someone. See, sometimes we go asking. Sometimes we say to God, tell me what I need to do in this situation. (coughs) Tell me where I need to go. Tell me what I need to do to get out of this difficult situation I'm in. Sometimes we do that. In fact, the more desperate it is, the more we start asking. Sometimes God has to come and call us. Say, you are the person that I want for this situation. You are what's needed. And God spoke to Deborah and said, go get that guy called Barak. From the city of Kadesh, a city of refuge, a place of safety in the Hebraic sense. Go and call him out from that place of safety. And when he came, and again there's just a little artistic impression there of what that might have looked like. She opened and said, has not God said? Now that's an interesting phrase. That could just be the way that she versed anything that she prophesied. Has not God said? But if you look at it a bit more literally... Does it not imply that God had already said something to Barak and maybe he hadn't responded? Has not, come on Barak, I want you to come, go fetch Barak, God's got to say something to him again for the second, for the third, for the fourth, for the sixteenth time. Have I not said Barak? Have I not said that I have a calling on your life? How many times is God saying to you, And to me, have I not said you are more than what you believe you are? Have I not said that you are healed? Have I not said that you are prosperous? Have I not said? Have I not said? But we can sometimes look at the situation and the empty streets and the no weapons and, well, okay, I'll believe it when I see it is where our faith sits way down here. But she says, no, this is the word of God to you, Barak. Have I not said? And the message was, go and gather an army at Mount Tabor. There's Mount Tabor, 10,000 men. She instructed him to go and gather on that mountain. (coughs) Not a big mountain, is it, really? Can you visualize 10,000 people on that? It would be pretty visible, I think. It would be hard to gather an army on that mountain, and it would be sort of secretive. This is not, you know, guerrilla warfare. This is not hiding and pouncing on the enemy, who is far more numerous. This is gather them around visibly. And she says, the prophetess says to Barak, that God says, I will bring Sisera to you. So I'm all right with the first bit, says Barak. Gather the army. Yeah, okay, I could do that. And I will bring Sisera to you. Okay, I can visualize that. Me versus Sisera. Me and my army versus Sisera. I'm up for that. And his army, she says. Okay, not too, not too happy with that, because his army is much bigger than our army would be. <sighs> but as long as they don't bring the... Oh, right, and the chariots as well. Now, bear in mind, this is the Iron Age. You know, we don't often think of biblical times in terms of Bronze Age and Iron. But this is the early Iron Age here. Iron had just been invented. An iron chariot was brand new technology. This is, was laser-guided, heat-seeking missiles, right? This is it. It would look something like that. You've seen them on, in the movies. But this is, this is what Barak and his army would have in front of him. They had nothing like that. This was scary stuff. They had <gasps> chariots. 
And this prophet is saying, gather an army, I'll bring Sisera, his army, and the chariots to you. You can see why maybe it was a difficult word for him to have heard the first time, or the second time, or the third time. We don't know if he, if he ignored it, but you can see it's a tough mission. But of course the punchline is, and I will give him into your hand. See, this is very much where we've been at this morning. This is Barak's faith moment. This is where he has to say, this is the word of, the God, in my, of God in my situation. This is the word for me. Am I going to act on it? The only way I could act on this is in faith. Because in logic, in common sense, in any other measure, this is not a sensible thing to do. Stand up on a mountain, really visibly, and this huge army is going to come to me with their chariots. You know, this is suicide. But it is his faith moment. That's what he's been challenging us with today, isn't it? Dick Fosbury, running up to that bar, having thought it through and realized it would be good if I could do this, had to run up to it really fast and then turn around as no one had ever done before, and throw himself backwards over the high jump bar. That must have taken a bit of faith. I can't imagine you got it right exactly the first time. But that whole thing of turning around to make the big step forward, that whole thing of, I've gone so far, but to really make the transition, I need something more. And that might mean turning my back on the enemy, and doing something which is nonsensical. Who could jump over a high jump bar backwards? No one's ever done it. Dick Fosby said, yeah, I can do it, and it'll be better. So is that what God's saying to you? Is he saying to me? There is something that I want to take you. There's some experience in your life. There's some challenge in your life that you need to get over. There is a transition that you are going through, and I will do it, says God. And if you don't believe me, it ain't going to happen. Because if you believe me, it'll happen. But if you sit there and say, I'll believe it when I see it, you know what? You ain't going to see it. Because this is the faith moment. Barak had to decide, okay, I'm doing it. And he did. And he said to Deborah, fine. If that's what God said, I give in. I'll do it. But he said something more. He said, okay, but only if you'll come with me. I will, I will take this step of faith, but only if you're coming with me. Now, many preachers have uh, given interpretations as to why he said that. There's basically four th- reasons. And again, we don't know. But let me give you the four reasons why he might have said that. First one, because he was afraid. That is often quoted that way. I'm not entirely sure what one extra person, albeit a woman... Mighty warriors we've seen from the previous slides, you know, with big swords and everything, would have actually, I don't know, would have even the numbers up particularly. 10,001 versus Scissor's army. But, you know, it could have been fear. To me, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense, that one. It could have been that he wanted the presence of a prophetess and therefore, as he would see, and God with him on the battlefield. That makes a lot more sense to me. You know, I'm going to fight this battle, but I want you, prophetess, and I want God in this with me. 
Some have suggested he fancied her. So if we ditch the idea that she was married to Lapidoth, that actually does make a bit more sense. In fact, it's quite sweet, actually. I'm going to go into a battle and no doubt be slaughtered. Come with me. It's a, it's a date. Um, no, okay. Probably not, right? Probably not the most romantic of a... Yeah, it's all becoming clear now, isn't it? To be honest, that'd be better than some of the dates I have taken on, actually, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, or the fourth one. Well, I'm going, and if I'm going to die, you'll come with me. <laughs> and actually, it became a challenge to Deborah. Whatever the motivation was, that was Deborah's faith moment. I've delivered the word of God. I have imparted something, and they said, okay, I'm doing it. And you know what? Back at you. Straight 180 degrees back. Okay, I'm going to step out in faith. So are you. So don't think being a watchman, a seer, a prophet is always going to mean that other people are fighting the battles. There is a time that you'll be out there in the firing line as well. Right? You'll be there standing with them as well. That's why this whole campaign is talked about Deborah and Barak. Might have been a couple. We don't know. But anyway, that's them. A faith moment. Is that what God's given us this morning? A moment to really say, to make that choice. Be it for healing. Be it for change. Be it for salvation. Be it for actually beginning to give in to God. Without us acting in faith, nothing will happen. Oh, that's a bit confusing. That's a map of what, where it all happened. You can see the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean on the left-hand side. Big star in the middle, Mount Tabor. Let's forget that one. Let's do it this way. This, so I'm over Cyprus. If you've got your Mediterranean geography in your head, so I'm over the Mediterranean Sea here, and I'm looking at Israel. Can you see the Sea of Galilee's just peeping on the left-hand side there, just over there? And the Dead Sea is right over on the top right-hand corner. Right in front of you is a big valley. You see it says the Jezreel Valley. It's quite an important valley in Scripture. That's where the Battle of Armageddon is going to happen. Megiddo is on the right-hand side over there. You can just see that marked on. Mount Tabor doesn't come out too well in that uh, description. It's in the middle, sort of to the left-hand side. You can see a little white dot. That's a little triangle. It says Mount Tabor. Sort of about a third of the way along and two-thirds of the way up. Anyway, it's a mountain on the edge of this big, big valley. And, of course, easy pickings or easy, easy to be seen. And Nazareth is the other place that's just listed there as well. So, he gathered the army, 10,000 people, on the mountain. And you know what happened? Sisera was tipped off that Barak was assembling an army and arose. He got his chariots ready and out he came. So they're all standing on the mountain, 10,000 and one people there. And what did Deborah do? She prophesied, today's the day. This is it. And I guess that's quite a reasonably accurate picture. They're on the mountain. Clouds of um, troops charging towards them in a big blur with chariots at the front. They've got their spears. Not sure where they got them from. There's no weapons in the nation. But okay, they found something maybe. Probably more likely pitchforks and hand implements. Can you imagine the terror? Terror. 
And of course, when you're faced with terror, that's where faith really gets tested. I was all right when it was a plan, God. I was all right when it was kind of piecing together and I could see how you were going to work it all out, but I hadn't quite seen that there would really be an army charging towards us. They could have turned and ran. They were so committed, just like a pig and bacon and eggs, they were so committed, they were there on the mountain, come what may. And if all that happened is that the chariots would come and slaughter them, so be it. They, the army, had faith in Barak and Deborah's God-given guidance. In essence, 10,001 people had their faith moment when they were on that mountainside. And you're all good Bible scholars, so you, knew what hap- you know what happens next. A mighty storm flooded the plain and bogged the chariots down. That's, that's kind of how we interpret particular passages in the, uh, in the Song of Deborah. <coughs> it's like something for a comic strip, that one, isn't it? I like that. That's a zap, kapow, you'd expect to be alongside that. And that's what happened, you know. The heavens opened, and God showed up, literally, and poured out the rain, and what a chariot's not good at? Going through mud. So the actual prime weapon of the enemy stopped. And, and the, the security of the enemy, we are mighty because of our chariots, completely null and void in that moment. doesn't matter how many they had, because the chariots weren't working, they panicked. God will undermine the foundations of the enemy's plans in your life and in my life if we stand our ground and proceed in faith. Faith is God's currency. If we want something from God, that's the payment. That's what it costs us. You believe it, you take it in faith, he'll show up. And he'll show off, as he obviously did do in this situation. So, Sisera, the enemy leader, the oppressor, Scarper, he ran off. Where did he run to? Anybody know? Of course you know, you're reading it in front of you. That's good. So off he went. And he sought refuge with Heber, or Haber, and his wife, Jael. Now, Heber had taken himself, he was a Jew, but he'd taken himself away from his inheritance... So he'd moved himself away from where he belonged and camped at the absolute border of his inheritance. If you cross-reference with the passage that I have in Joshua, you'll see that the place where he camped was the edge of his family's inheritance. And he was the one that tipped off Sisera that Barak was assembling an army on Mount Tabor. A logical place for Sisera to run off to. It was reasonably local and a place to hide. Well, what happened next has been the subject of an awful lot of art over the years. Should we have a look? We'll have a little slideshow here. So that's his wife, JL, and there's Scissor asleep on the floor. And she comes in. What's in in her hand? A mallet, a hammer. And she creeps up to him while he's sleeping. I don't know where he got his armor from there, but okay. We're into the Raphaelite tradition now, I think, in the art here. Uh, Creeps up on him. Puts the... uh, tent peg on his temple whilst he's fast asleep 
changing his clothes each time I see there. Must be a good dream. Um, I like this one. This is the best. This is. Uh, so this is Lego JL with a temp peg over Lego Scissorer as he's snoring away there. And then, kajunk. If you look closely, he looks a little bit surprised in that one as he's got a temp peg through his temple. And there he is. That's a, that's a photograph taken, reenactment photographs. That's quite bloody in that one. And there we have it as a cartoon. And off she goes. So she kills Scissorer with a temp peg. Which, as it happens, was exactly what Deborah had prophesied to Barak when he said, I'm only going to go and do this if you're coming with me. She said, all right, I'll come. But the final victory, the death of Scissorer, will be in the hands of a woman. I guess he assumed that would be Deborah, with her mighty sword and everything that we saw earlier. No, it was with a, a housewife and a tent peg. I can't work this one out. This is, the, the, the physics is all wrong here. The angles, there's no way. She'd just hit him in the stomach if she brought that hammer down. And he's on a pillow, and that really wouldn't work. But okay, I don't like that one. JL, the wife broke with the established custom of hospitality and protection for visitors, as is written into Scripture. That wasn't a joke. That's actually a big deal. You invite someone into your house, you're affording them protection. You're breaking tradition and custom. What a choice she had to make. Was that JL's faith moment? The other thing, of course, she had to uh, consider was her husband's allegiances. You see, her husband, Heber, had been one of the people that tipped off Sisera. His allegiance was with Sisera. She clearly didn't like that. But she was a woman under authority. She was a good, submissive housewife. But... When God said, I have presented you with an opportunity, she had to make a choice to go against her husband's allegiances. I'm just leaving that out there, because I know that applies to a lot of folk in the room. There is a time when sometimes that's the right thing to do. When she did that, and eventually showed Barak, here is the person you've been chasing, I've nailed him to the floor. Literally. In so doing, she turned her and her family's reputation from being traitors, let's be honest, to heroes. JL is celebrated as a biblical hero. Without that one act, JL and Heber would have been assigned to the list of bad guys in Scripture. And so she, in her faith moment, when confronted with that opportunity, said, okay, I'm going to do it. I understand the consequences of tradition. I understand the consequences of what my husband will think, but God has presented me with this opportunity. I've got to do it. So are we willing to respond in that way? 
regardless of tradition, of my understanding, of where I've been, of all my history, of all that I've done, regardless of my comfort zone, regardless of all my allegiances, who I'm going to upset, this is my moment to choose God. This is my moment to choose to step forward. This is my moment to turn my life, my reputation, and my family's reputation 180 degrees around, and I'm going God's way. That's exactly what happened there. It was not planned. She didn't expect it. Suddenly, Scissor is there. Her husband's off, no doubt. And that thought came into her mind. God planted it in there. This is your moment. This is your moment. Well, this is your moment. This is your moment. God say, this is your moment to act in faith. So, when the, his word is revealed to you, prophetically, or when you hear somebody preaching it at you, whatever it is, and it's your faith moment arises, take courage and act. It does take courage, because it may involve you standing on a mountain with chariots coming at you. It takes courage. Act. Are you willing to put your destiny where his word is? Deborah had to do that. She'd spoken the word. And then it was, okay, if you believe this is God's word, you're coming with me. Her destiny was completely wrapped up in the word that she was given. If we act in faith, the enemy's plan will be undermined. That's God's promise to us. But God... Put God's will first, and you will stop the oppressor in your life. The cycle of oppression, or the thing that's oppressing you now, put God's will first, and it'll end. One more bit of art. I'm not really comfortable with this one, but this is, you know, I came across this one as well. of Deborah and JL action heroes. There she is with her scrolls. Uh, a big D on her belt. Can you see that? And there's JL with a blood-stained tent peg and, and a blood-stained mallet as well. Yeah, I think we'll just stay with that. That's probably a bit more realistic. Because she was, I won't say just a woman, I don't mean it that way, but she was just the right person at the right time, listening to God, sitting under a palm tree, sharing what God said. God, God says, this is your faith moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You're not here just to challenge us. You're here to liberate us. You're here to set us free. You're here to change our lives for the better. Lord, forgive us sometimes that we just look at the circumstances around us. We look at uh, financial and health and relationship and employment situations and say, this is where I'm at. This is who I am. Lord, they do not define us. Our relationship with you defines us. And Lord, we, each one of us, in the way that you are interpreting it to us, take this as our faith moment to say, I'm in. I'm doing it. I'm going to the mountain. I am following the word. I am going to reach to that tent peg and that mallet and I'm going to act. I'm going to take action because you have said. Lord, help us with the courage that it takes to act in faith as you place that faith moment in front of us. Amen. 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 We've obviously had a bit of time earlier where we were praying for people for healing, which was great. 
If there are challenges in your life, I'm not going to call you out for prayer, but if there are challenges in your life and you've made a decision to say, this is my moment and okay, I'm doing it. If when I prayed or whilst I was sharing, you thought, fair enough, I'm going to do it. God hears that. He hears that. You know how I became a Christian? 1st of January 1978. I know it's hard to believe it was so long ago, but that's when it was. I've been brought up in a Christian environment all my life. You know, I knew everything. I could preach the sermons as much as my father, the preacher, could do. But I didn't commit. And when I realized that I was missing out on a better life, it's selfish, isn't it? But when God revealed that to me, do you know what my prayer was? Okay, I'll give it a go. That is my prayer of salvation. Okay, God, I'll give it a go. Nothing more religious than that. Okay, God, I'll give it. Because you know what? It was an act of my will. I knew the theory, but I wasn't going to do it as a child. But then I said, okay, this is my moment. That was my moment back in 1978 when I said, okay, I give in. I'm going your way, God. And I have ever since. That's all it takes. And if you've made that decision in your heart, as however you've worded it, God says, all right, I'm on your case. I'm standing with you. And if you want to share that with, with somebody you know, you trust, you love, somebody you came with, somebody, one of the leaders, then you do that this morning. You put your stake in the ground, not in the temple, put your stake in the ground and say, this is my faith moment day. This is when I made that decision. Will you do that? If you've made that decision, you share that with somebody today, and they'll, they'll remind you of it. Okay? Amen. Amen.